If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look there. There was one pastor, he wrote about the time he had a new visitor at his church. And this was his story. He said, not long ago, a young woman visited our church from another church in the area. And after the service, she was walking through the lobby and one of our ladies noticed her and didn't recognize her and walked over and greeted her and asked if she was a guest. She said, yes. And the lady said, well, did you enjoy the service? And the visitor said, yes, but I won't be back. And they asked her, why? Were we not friendly? And she said, oh, no, your people were very friendly. She said, oh, did you not enjoy the worship? She said, oh, no, the worship was wonderful. In fact, it's very similar to the church I attend. She said, well, then why won't you be back? She said, well, it's your pastor. She said, oh, you didn't like the pastor? She said, no, I liked him very much. He's a great communicator, very interesting. He's just too strong for me. She said, really? And the visitor said, yes, the message he preached today would never have been preached in my church. (laughs) Now, in case you're wondering what he preached that day, it was a hot, controversial topic but he dealt with it biblically and compassionately, but firmly. But kind of like our message this morning, it's a topic that I think most churches rarely talk about. But I'm in good company because the first word Jesus ever used in his first sermon he ever preached was this word. And unless we do this and do what it commands, we cannot have a relationship with God. And it's something we must continuously do to maintain fellowship with God. And the reason we're dealing with it is because we began last week the series Faults. And we learned that earthquakes are caused by geological faults. They're caused by shifting in the layers of rock, and when those faults occur, earthquakes erupt. And likewise in life, faults cause massive earthquakes in relationships. And the Bible calls those faults sin. Whenever relationships are ruptured, one of two things is usually true. Either it's my fault, not yours, or it's your fault, not mine. And in this series, we're going to deal with how to handle sin when it's your fault, when you are the one that have done something wrong to someone else. And then we're going to deal with how to handle it when it's not your fault, but somebody else's, when they're the ones that have offended you. And last week we said when we sin, when the fault is ours, When we've done wrong, we must start at the epicenter. It's where the earthquake first begins, right? Because an earthquake that's felt in Atlanta may have started in South Carolina. Well, every fault begins with our relationship with God. Every sin is first a sin against God. And last week we talked about confession, and we said the first person we must ask forgiveness from whenever we've done anything wrong is God. And the good news we found out is God is a perfect record. And every time we sincerely confess our sins to God, He forgives us. But the problem is too many people stop at confession. They think all they have to do is just confess and everything will be great. But there's a second step. It's the seismic shift. See, a seismic shift is where there is a shifting in rocks that is so great it causes another earthquake. And so there is a seismic shift that must take place with us and our sin if we are going to maintain that fellowship with God. We have to confess, and then we have to repent. 
Jesus gave the church a job to do before he left this planet. It's called the Great Commission. If you don't know the Great Commission, it's, it's simply the task we've been given to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone in this world. Interestingly, Luke, alone of the gospels, records this part of the message that Jesus commanded us to preach. Luke 24, 47. It says, And repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. See, if we're not preaching repentance, we're not preaching what Jesus told us to preach. So today we're going to study a situation, though, that took place in the church, and it illustrates exactly what true repentance is and what it does. Now, a little background to the story. Paul had gotten involved in a disciplinary problem in this church in Corinth. There was a church member who committed a grievous, wicked sin, and Paul told the church to deal with the issue. But instead of dealing with it, they just ignored it. They did nothing about it. And so Paul wrote a letter to this church and he rebuked them because now they are a part of the sin. And he tells them how to handle the matter. And then he sends his protege, Titus, to follow up and to make sure that they did what he requested. And this church serves as a model for how sin is to be dealt with in the right way if we're going to deal with our faults correctly. Because when we turn to God, we turn away from our sin. And that's important. Because there are some who think they've dealt with their sin because they've confessed it to God. But they struggle with the fact that they keep doing the same thing over and over and over. They keep confessing to God and they continue to feel guilty. And they live a totally defeated life. And the reason is because they've never taken the second step. They've never experienced this seismic shift. It's the only remedy for their fault. So let me ask, are you really ready to deal with whatever it is that's keeping you on a guilt trip? If you're ready to deal with that, with what's coming between you and God in your relationship, here's where it begins. First, we have to truly realize our sin. But that's what Paul had done. He founded this church. He was the spiritual father of many of these people. And he confronted them with the fact that there was sin in the church. And they hadn't dealt with it. And therefore, they had become part of the sin. And he read them a letter and rebuked them and exhorted them to do the right thing. And he was afraid, as many of us are sometimes, he may have burned some bridges. He was afraid rather than receiving these instructions and acting on it, the church would reject it and turn their back on him. But Titus comes back with this report the church had done exactly what Paul had been praying and hoping they would do. And then he says something strange about the church. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. He says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. They received this letter and they could have had a lot of emotions. It could have been arrogance, anger, apathy. But instead, they were full of grief and sorrow. And Paul said that's a good thing. Because grief and sorrow are signs of a broken heart. And whenever we sin, we should have a broken heart because we have broken the heart of God. And even though it hurt Paul to tell them and to hurt them, 
It actually gladdened him that they were hurt because he knew that they realized their sin. They realized there was such a thing as sin and they were committing it. And that's important because when the concept of sin is diminished, the practice of sin increases and guilt and shame over that sin disappears. I mean, why do you think we're living in a culture now where guilt and shame have become basically a thing of the past? I read somewhere that someone said sin used to sneak down back alleys, but now it struts down Main Street. Right? Sin's no longer a sin. It's, it's mistakes. It's fa- faulty judgment. It's miscalculations. But when we fail to realize sin and call it sin, we lose the power to truly ask for forgiveness of that sin. I mean, we don't even know how to apologize properly anymore. Now, I don't mean this in any way politically, but I want to read something. It was interesting. Many of us remember the scandal with President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Right? At first he engaged, he didn't engage in immoral activity, and then later he was forced to admit he did. Well, he went on TV and he gave this five-minute speech, supposedly to confess the whole thing. But there was a reporter that examined his speech, and this is what he found. Total number of words in the speech, 549. Number of words devoted to self-justification, 134. Number of words devoted to regret for his actions, 4. Number of words devoted to attacking the prosecutor, 180. Number of words devoted to saying it's time to move on, 137. And number of words devoted to an actual apology, 0. Now that really shouldn't surprise anyone. Because until we realize our sin, we can never take the proper steps to get forgiveness for that sin, to have fellowship with God completely restored. So can I just say, if you're struggling with any stronghold in life, until you realize what that is, until you confess it, confess it as a sin against God, you'll never get on the road to redemption and forgiveness. We must also then regret our sin. I mean, anybody with a conscience is going to regret when they've done something wrong, right? Especially if they've hurt someone else. And Paul wisely points out there are two different kinds of sorrow over their sin. Two different kinds of guilt trips. One puts you on the freeway to forgiveness. The other is on a dead end to death. Verse 9. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There is a huge difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And my guess is if you're like me, you've experienced both kinds. So answer this question. Have you ever been caught doing something you know you shouldn't have been doing? And you weren't sorry for what you were doing. You were just sorry that you got caught doing what you were doing. (laughs) I mean, there are some surefire marks that sorrow over sin is worldly, not godly. Worldly sorrow leads to denial. And we say things like, everyone's doing it. That, that really wasn't me. It's not that big of a deal. Or, or I don't think I, what I did was really that bad. Worldly sorrow leads to despair. 
It simply looks at the consequences of having to suffer for what we've done. And we say things like, well, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my marriage. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to go to prison. And we tend to think about what our sin has done to us. But even worse, worldly sorrow leads to death. When we sin and either deny it or excuse it or explain it or justify it, it kills our conscience. It blocks us from the forgiveness that we need to have fellowship with God. Basically, I read this. Worldly sorrow is like crocodile tears. Believe it or not, crocodiles have shed tears. They're real tears just like ours. And they're called crocodile tears because tears are only normally noticeable in a crocodile if he's been out of the water for a long time, if his eyes are dried out. So his body naturally secretes this fluid to clean the eye and to lubricate it. He's not brokenhearted. He's just dried out. Worldly sorrow is crocodile tears. Now don't misunderstand. People can truly feel sorry for their sin in a worldly way. But it doesn't lead to repentance. It leads to death. I mean, a great biblical example is Judas. Right, there's no question Judas was genuinely remorseful. He was sorry. His heart was broken over what he did to Jesus. But where did that sorrow get him? He hung himself. Right, instead of going to the one that hung on a cross, he hung himself on a tree. Here's the way his life ended. He went to the chief priests and the elders who, who bought him off, and he said this, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But what if it read this way? I've sinned by betraying innocent blood and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and repented and asked for forgiveness. I believe his life would have ended so much differently. God doesn't want you feeling sorry for yourself. He wants you feeling sorry for your sin. I mean, we look at sin for what it does to us. What we should be looking at sin is what it does to God. That, that phrase, godly sorrow, literally means according to God grief. Godly sorrow has God as its focus. I mean, worldly sorrow says, oops, I broke the law. Godly sorrow says, God, I broke your heart. And there's a difference between the tears that leave you where you are and tears that move you to where you need to be. One of the strangest statements Jesus ever made is in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How are people that mourn blessed? Well, when Jesus is talking about people that mourn over their sin and are heartbroken because they've broken the heart of God, Godly sorrow is good sorrow because it leads us to the only one who is good and who can make us good. And there is one test to show whether or not you are truly sorry, truly remorseful and regretful for what you've done wrong when you sin, when you hurt God, when you hurt others. And that is this. We must fully repent of our sin. I mean, there's something desperately wrong with people who can do wrong to others and feel no remorse, no regret, no shame. There are two different kinds of sorrow. One is divine sorrow and one is deadly sorrow. 
And, and here's the difference. Listen again to what Paul said in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Don't miss this. Repentance involves conviction. You can be genuinely convinced you've done wrong, convicted you've done wrong, but that's still not repentance. Repentance also includes confession. But you can confess your sin and still not repent. Repentance includes contrition. You can genuinely feel sorry and be grieved over your sin, over the fact that you've hurt someone else, and over you've done what, done what you've done wrong. But that alone is not repentance. Real repentance includes change. There's an intellectual change. The word repent means to change one's mind. When you truly repent, you change your mind about God and Jesus and about sin and about yourself. But it's not just intellectual. I mean, even Judas changed his mind. But repentance is not just a change of mind. It's also a change of heart. There's that emotional change. I mean, you feel sorry for your sin, but you don't just regret what you've done. You regret whom you've done it to. It's not just a worldly grief that is self-centered. It's a godly grief, and it's God-centered. Not just because of what it may or has done to you, but because of what it has done to God. Real repentance also involves spiritual change. When you change your mind and you change your heart, you change direction. You do an about-face, right? You do a 180, and you turn away from your sin. Like the woman that was caught in adultery and Jesus said, go and sin no more. It's that determination to do everything within your power, within God's help, not to commit the same sin again. That's the spirit of repentance. See, let me close this morning by talking about two different groups of people. There are some who have done all the things necessary on the outside to be right with God but have never done the one thing necessary on the inside to be right with God. I mean, they grew up religious, maybe joined a church, maybe were baptized, maybe worked in a church, gave money throughout the years, but really and truly have never been a change in their life because they've never repented. And then there are others who, who do love Jesus and know Jesus and want to live for Him, but, but they have a pet sin and they keep it on a leash they hide it in the closet. They, they don't want to give it up. I mean, for some, it's greed and the hunger of money, or maybe it's their temper or, or their impatience. Or For some, it could be their pride. Whatever it is, it keeps us from, from going to someone we've wronged and we ask for forgiveness. And we don't experience that joy and that freedom we should have in knowing Christ as our Savior because we haven't repented So we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, is there anything I need to truly repent of in my life to have 100% uninterrupted fellowship with God? Or maybe you're here today and you've never truly changed, truly established that relationship with God because you've never repented. Would you be honest enough 
today to say you need to repent? Remember, you have to turn away from something to turn to something. And you cannot turn to God unless you're willing to turn away from your sin. And the moment you turn away from sin, you turn to God. Don't be like the wife who, before her conversion to Christ, endlessly nagged her husband, berated her husband, criticized her husband, was just hellacious to live with. She came home from church one day and told her husband she'd become a Christian. And he was excited at first, but nothing changed. She kept nagging, kept criticizing, kept berating. And finally, one day he told her, he said, you know, I don't mind that you were born again. I just wish you hadn't been born again as yourself. See, when you truly repent of your sin and you turn to God, there is this seismic shift in your life. and You can never be the same you again. So is that what you need to this morning? Do you need to truly repent? Or maybe for the first time repent and surrender your life to Christ. If that's what you desire, I invite you to come.